the idea of just being able to buy a boat and have everything that you needed in that boat and just to set off and also you can't quit once you're out there the only thing you could do is press a button to get someone to come pick you up but you really like do i want to press that button when i spent the last 18 months planning for this whereas if you're doing a bike tour or you're doing a run or you're doing something else there's a pub just down the road you know you can go and sit in there or you can just get on a bus and go somewhere or you can fly home and it's really easy actually when you're out at sea you're just in your nice little cabin off you go and that's all you got to worry about it's just rowing Welcome back to the Harness Nails podcast brought to you by Islands Adventure Magazine, Outsider.ie. My name's Kevin. Thank you for listening to and downloading our 17th episode, which is supported by Follow the Camino, the original walking holiday experts. Have you always wanted to tick the Camino de Santiago off your bucket list? Well, for over a decade, Follow the Camino has been helping pilgrims to walk, cycle or horse ride along the famous uh, Camino de Santiago pilgrimage routes in Spain. They have created an itinerary just for you that includes airport transfers, the very best accommodation meals and luggage transfers so that you can just enjoy the Spanish adventure to the fullest. Take your first step. Go visit www.followthecamino.com. Follow the Camino, your Camino, your way. Now, if you are an avid listener to the podcast, you might recall the wonderful conversation we had in episode number seven with former professional rugby player Damien Brown, who completed the epic Atlantic Challenge rowing race, a solo effort in 63 days. Well, a similar challenge was completed in March this year in just 49 days by our guest. We have the great pleasure of chatting to now, making it the fastest solo transatlantic crossing by a female rower with just six women having previously completed the journey solo. She has an equally fascinating backstory to go along with this phenomenal achievement, having survived not one, but two brain surgeries. Let's hear more from the one and only Kiko Matthews. Kiko, I've been looking so incredibly forward to having you on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share the stories and memories from your amazing adventure with uh, our listeners and I. Thank you very much for having me. It sounds like so great when you put it all like that. (laughs) Well, what you did was great, Kiko. Such an achievement. Before we chat about that, though, Let's uh, go back a few years now, back to 2009. You were 28 years old at the time and uh, you were suffering from memory loss, uh, muscle wasting, osteoporosis, diabetes, insomnia and psychosis, not in a really good state. And initially doctors were not entirely sure what was wrong with you. How did you feel when they figured out that it was Cushing's disease caused by a tumor on your pituitary gland and that you needed life-threatening surgery? Um, well, actually, it was my mum who discovered it. So uh-huh. we were, I just, I'd been to doctors and I'd said everything that was going on. And then it turned out I had diabetes and mum gets on the internet and has a look up of like things that cause diabetes because mm-hmm. it wasn't really, there was no history of it in the family. And she was like, oh, you've got Cushing's. And my dad, who's a GP and doctor himself, said, mm. don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> no one <laughs> no one gets that disease. It's so rare. It's like one in 25,000 people a year wow. or something. And, and what are the chances of the doctor's daughter getting it? Well, this doctor's daughter has, <laughs> um, <laughs> has got self-proclaimed third child syndrome, which mm-hmm. is basically attention-seeking to get parents' attention. <laughs> and uh, the old cold or broken arm was never going to work. Mm. So I thought <laughs> I'd better get something that was... Um, you know, pretty life life threatening. But uh, I think you know it's always nice when you've got weird things going on mm. to have a diagnosis of something. So like you know, I was looking really funny and I was a bit hairy and I was spotty <laughs> and my 
legs were getting thin, thin and felt all weird. And, mm. you know, I was losing weight rapidly, about half a kilo a day or something. Um, to actually get a diagnosis, then it means that the doctors basically can get on and do what they're they're good at mm. is actually qu- is quite a relief. People always get scared about going to the doctors and going to the hospital <laughs> in case they find something. But it's like, surely that's a better option than not knowing. Yeah, exactly. Just sitting there and allowing the symptoms to just progressively get worse and worse. Well, afterwards, you went back to teaching. But that surgery, it changed your mindset in many ways of how you should be living your life, didn't it? Yes, I'd say it gave me a very good excuse <laughs> to not be doing the job that I was doing, which mm-hmm. I hadn't really ever, so it never really clicked with me. I, I loved the kids as a teacher. I loved the science. I was doing secondary school mm-hmm. science teaching. Um, I love teaching. I love the subject, sorry. Um, but just all together, it didn't really work. So when after I'd been ill and I went, then went back to teaching, thinking that the reason it hadn't really worked was because I was probably ill, mm-hmm. um, I soon realized that it's still the same, but I had a really good excuse. I was like, come on, Kiko, you're not even meant to be here. This is extra time in your life. Why would you want to do something that you don't want to do? But it's funny because actually every day for everybody is extra time. But we don't have that attitude. So mm-hmm. I feel very lucky that that all happened because it just gave me a kick up the arse to find my... What I wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but yeah. So amazing. Now, obviously, as I mentioned at the start, you you had two brain surgeries. The second was just a little over a year ago now, when another tumor was removed. What was your feelings this time around? Were you fearful that you know maybe second time could be the charm, obviously in a negative way, or were you perhaps more relaxed about it? I was totally like totally cool about it. Okay. Um, I knew what the doctors were. I, I knew exactly what to expect. I knew. The only slight difference was that I was planning, <laughs> I was in the middle of training for mm-hmm. quite a large event and um, it actually made me really strong. So I'd been pulling some amazing times on the rowing machine because um, mm-hmm. this is what happens, because it's all hormone based, it's very complicated, but I was very strong to begin with. And again, when they when they found it the second time, a little bit of me was like, what a great PR stunt this is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, you literally couldn't, you couldn't have written this story yeah. any better if you had tried. Like, what are the chances after eight years of never, not even expecting it or thinking it's come mm. back to suddenly be like, okay, something, something's going on here. And then no and behold, it was, mum was the most amazing change because the first time she spent a month looking at me like I was dying in hospital. Sure. And the oh. second time she was like, oh, do you want me to come to the hospital with you? (laughs) I was like, yes, I need some grapes. So please do come. (laughs) And I was only in hospital for three days rather than a month. So, I mean, I caught it so much earlier again. I mean, and I was really fit this time because I'd obviously in the middle of training. So Mm -hmm. my body was, apart from the hormone issue, I mean, generally it was in a really good fit state. So Mm -hmm. recovery was pretty quick. Wow. and back to training, ready mm. for the Atlantic. Incredible. Well, speaking about the Atlantic, that, that surgery literally came months before you were about to set off on your epic solo row. Was there a specific moment, Kiko, that you decided that you wanted to take on this challenge or was it more just like a series of events which led to it? I guess one one could say that everything leads, you know, everything's a build-up to something. But mm-hmm. I, I do remember mum saying to me, that she thought Prince Harry would make a good boyfriend. And I sort of thought about it was like, yep, how am I going to get his attention? (laughs) I thought, I know what, I'll row the Atlantic and go for world record. And he's Mm. bound to hear about me. And if I raise money for one of his charities, 
Um, it, clearly, I failed at that, <laughs> that exact sort of plan. Um, I'd met someone who knew someone who owned the boat, and I had seen ocean rowing going, and this person also said to me, you need to be doing a challenge, you're amazing, get out there and do something. And I kind of got a bit more familiar with the water, with the stand-up mm-hmm. paddleboard company that I'd set up. So there was a series of events happening like prior to that, but mm. nothing that really, yeah, I mean, literally it was kind of Prince Harry will hear about me if I go and row the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> and again, probably a little bit of third child attention seeking. Yeah. I was probably, no one was listening to me at home. So I thought maybe I need to just prove to them that I'm as great as they are. Yeah. And what was the reaction like for you though, from people who you know that you told them about this expedition that you were going to embark on? I mean, even complete strangers you were telling, because I, I heard that you bumped into good old Boris Becker, tennis legend, and you struck uh, yeah. up a conversation with him. You didn't even realize who he was. <laughs> no, I know. It's so funny. Um, well, the amazing thing is that this tumor gives you a lot of sort of like, it makes me particularly, mm-hmm. even though everyone else who seems to get it seems to be depressed. I get completely manic and hyperactive and excited about life so i was literally like i'm on cloud nine and yes i was in odbins a uh, chain of nice wine stores in wimbledon mm-hmm. had no idea that this that boris lived in there and in walks this blonde dapper looking older man who's chatting about something and i get talking and the uh, i've also have struck up conversation with a man who owns odbins and he said oh this lady's rowing the atlantic in sort of six months or whatever and he mm-hmm. went oh, you don't look big enough to be a rower. And I said, I am. Check out my muscles. And so I made him feel my guns. I said, check out my guns. And I made him feel my guns. And, and then when he left, and apparently he was going to help me and support me and all that sort of stuff. He was probably mm. pissed. But um, <laughs> and when he left, I said to the guy, I was like, that looked really like Boris Becker. He's like, it was Boris Becker. I'm like, what? I would have taken my photo with him if I'd known. I was really like, oh, my God. At least he felt my guns. Yeah. <laughs> That was, uh, that was all right. Incredible. <laughs> well, for our listeners, I mean, who've heard about your amazing story, they would be aware that you had zero knowledge, no prior experience when it came to rowing, which might sound strange to some people who would wonder why you would decide to take on this challenge without any familiarity with what you were about to get yourself into. So, Kiko, why take on the challenge then to have no experience in it and then why do you choose rowing the Atlantic rather than something that you're more uh, better prepared for? Because I didn't want to stand up and stand up paddleboarding was the only other option so Mm -hmm. I thought sitting down is probably more comfortable and most things that you start for the first time you haven't done before when you go and get a job your first Mm. marketing job I mean you did a podcast for the first time once right (laughs) (laughs) and what made you decide you wanted to do that is that everything has a first has a start Mm. so I guess and the fact that I knew the guy who's got the boat that I used, Charlie Pitcher, I guess that was kind of a, you know, I already knew it existed. So, mm. and I knew that other people had done it. So why would I not be able to do it? But I 100% think that the tumor had a lot to pay, yeah. had a lot to pay for, mm. for all of this. <laughs> well, starting a podcast is not as uh, extreme as rowing 3,000 miles across an ocean. Maybe not. But maybe it is for some people. I don't know. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I honestly think that I just kind of put a whole lot of things together. I was, my job as a stand-up paddleboard instructor with the business was very summer-based, so I needed something to do in the winter and mm-hmm. work towards in the winter because obviously I'm doing nothing. And I knew that ocean rowing was in the winter. The idea of just being able to buy a boat and have everything that you needed in that boat and just to set off. And also, you can't quit. Mm. You can't Once you're out there, the only thing you can do is press a button to get someone to come pick you up. But you really like... Do I want to press that button when I spent the last 18 months planning for this? Whereas if you're doing a bike tour or you're doing a run or you're doing something else, there's a pub just down the road. You know, you can go and sit in there or you mm. can just get on a bus and go somewhere or you can fly home and it's really easy. Or you've got like 
visas to worry about or you've got to find a house you know you've got to find somewhere to sleep at the end of the day and you've got to find your food and you've got to worry about people robbing you and all the yeah. other things that might go on while you're on land well actually when you're out at sea you're just in your nice little cabin off you go and that's all you've got to worry about it's just rowing yeah and so for me it just seemed like a very easy option <laughs> well even though you had no experience though i mean you didn't just jump into the boat wave goodbye and start rowing across the atlantic you were obviously wise enough to train and you took some time out to, to prepare for it accordingly what was that training like because i've heard you say that you're not a natural training type of person no i'm rubbish at being told what to do <laughs> so <laughs> i'm just training at the moment for an ultra marathon um i can't run i did one mile about four months ago and mm-hmm. i'm now up to about whatever but literally it's like i it has to fit around how i'm feeling and what i'm doing so mm. if i was going to meetings i'd cycle to meetings and back if i like paddle so because i like paddleboarding i'd go out and do like long paddle boards in the evening i quite fancied my gym instructor so that helped so mm. i had personal training with him mm-hmm. um the rowing once i've been told to do like this whole scheme of on the rowing machine and once which was the february before i left I managed to do two hours on, two hours off, two hours on. Mm-hmm. Once I'd done that, I was like, right, that's me done on the rowing machine. <laughs> I did a couple of marathons as well. And because I was so strong because of the tumour, I came eighth in the world that year of all women. <laughs> and the second time I came second in the world for all women. Wow. And so I was like, oh, what's the point in training? I don't even have to do anything. I could just sit on the rowing machine. <laughs> but obviously I was not well, but I didn't realise at the time. So I just mm. gave up rowing on the rowing machine. Um, I loved being outdoors. So basically any training that involves the outdoors mm. and has a purpose or is fun, I will do. Any training that hurts me or seems pointless, yeah. I don't like doing. So I think there's a massive thing in training is like how you are mentally as mm-hmm. well as like the physical process is obviously important. But I just think there's a, such a battle between the brain and the physical that if the brain's not happy doing it, then mm-hmm. it's almost like the physical doesn't work. So I'm a big believer that halfway through the training, there's a pint of cider and some pork scratchings. <laughs> or at the end of training, I rehydrate with a pint of cider rather than a glass of water because I hate water. So that is generally, (laughs) that is generally how my training is has been mm. and will be forevermore. Yeah, that sort of training. It's a visualization, they would call that, uh, Kiko. Yeah. Yet, yet, yet <laughs> a very interesting, another type of, I don't know, training technique, if you want to call it that, whereby you, you would tell your friends, your family, your followers on Facebook and Instagram that on a certain day you'd be doing a particular thing and as part of your training. And then obviously you have to follow through with it because, you, as you know, as soon as you post something on yeah. social media, you've got to do it. Yeah, exactly. So I, would, I remember clearly doing this like two hours thing i had to do one because i hadn't been on the road machine for so long i got got into that naughty habit of going oh my god it'll be fine but literally down so deep down knowing that it was just purely because i didn't want the reality to come <laughs> to come out so i was like right what am i going to do i'm going to tell the world everybody i've got to do two hours so i said it and i put like a little poll will i do it <laughs> yeah. to see so people could like click on the insta stories to mm-hmm. see what people were thinking and then i did it and i actually quite enjoyed it i took some um uh, I was taking currants, which is this like black currant. It's not a supplement, but it's a black currant thing, and it really uh-huh. helps with your training. I took some of those, and I actually did really well and quite enjoyed it. So right. I came back, and I was like, all of you who said no, I proved you wrong. And thank <laughs> you to all of those of you, you who said yes, because I did do it. It's this kind of like, um, you can't really get it wrong. So yeah. people who say no, it spurs me on to prove them wrong. And people that say yes, it encourages me. So it's like a win-win yeah. situation. And then if I don't do it, I'm like, sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> there are some times. There are some times. So there were some of those days where you didn't follow yeah, through with what you said. Back, I was cycling back 
this summer from Rotterdam um, to the UK and the wind was just full on in my face and I'd been uh, away for a month and I just wanted to get home and I said, is it really naughty if I get on a tram and just do like a 60-kilometre <laughs> tram ride through Belgium? And everyone's like, no, don't be so ridiculous. Some people were like, yes, you're such, you're so lazy. And I was like, oh, but, um, you know, points like that, I did just yeah. gave myself a break. <laughs> well, Kiko, hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, when you look back now, was the preparation tougher than the actual experience of rowing the some 3,000 miles across the Atlantic? Oh, yeah, good God. Like, totally, 100%. Like, rowing across the Atlantic was like the holiday at the end. That's why I think it was so enjoyable. I was like, thank God I haven't got to talk to anyone <laughs> like, forever. I've got to answer an email. I haven't got to think about where I've got to be. It was so hectic, particularly mm. because, like, any of these things, I was, like, are difficult to any event so hard. You've got to raise money for the boat. Mm-hmm. Then I had to raise money for King's College Hospital. I didn't have to, but I'd chosen to. Mm-hmm. Then I had to kind of survive while I was doing that. I didn't really have a proper job at the time because there's so much work involved in that. And I was doing it all on my own. It wasn't like I had a team of four people to to achieve the same. I mean, there's not a huge amount financially difference between a single, a solo and a four. You know, you've got to pay for the boat and you've got to, the shipping and most, the largest costs are like, regardless of one person or four persons. So, mm. There's a huge amount of work. It was so stressful. Plus, I was then, you know, had my little illness, <laughs> which didn't help situations smack bang in the middle. Yeah. You know, you've got training, you've got to survive. It's just like one thing after, then I got broken into. It's, like, it's constantly things mm. going wrong. And when I got to start line i was like oh thank the lord yeah you're one of the few on this podcast who 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 says the challenge is more like a holiday and the training is where the toughest part actually came in (laughs) very interesting well kiko you you purposely set out to break the record and you smashed it in fact i mean by a whole week i'm curious to know though why did you make this the goal the objective and not just you know taking on the challenge and completing it ocean rowing is a bit bit of a political thing here so it's a bit like doing I feel like I've cheated a little bit because the boat is so much better. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I guess that's that's record, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, everything, equipment improves as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that someone else will beat my time because the weather was absolutely shocking. <laughs> like I had really slow, bad weather. But to the truth be known, that if I was in the same boat as the woman who got the record, I might have got the same time. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like It's very difficult to know how much of that was me and how much of... That was the boat. Um, someone has done it in a similar boat to me. She did it in 59 days. So I don't know what she was doing, mm-hmm. to be honest, <laughs> to get 59 days. Um, but yeah, so really, I knew that I was going to get the record mm-hmm. because unless I was really rubbish, which the guys who gave me the boat were like, you're the only person who's strong enough and mental enough to do such a thing. Mm-hmm. So there's so much that is mental that you've just got to keep going. And if mm-hmm. you can just keep going, it's virtually impossible to not break that record. Yeah. Um, so that's all I did I just did keep going um, and I had a good boat yeah. despite the fact that I had rubbish weather so yeah. I kind of was very pleased that I I did actually took over just over a week mm. I took off but I had wanted to do it quicker and I probably could have done if it wasn't for that weather but you know a record's a record yeah. great I did what I wanted to do and um whether it could have been better or not, I guess you can't really worry about that. Yeah, and Done. the record's there, and you can, you can even be the one that can go back and try and, and break it yeah, one yeah. day. Well, Kiko, we've now spoken about the lead-up <laughs> to the actual event of rowing the Atlantic. Now let's get into the actual part of it. What was the routine that you followed? Did you have a routine? You know, What did you do when it came to eating, sleeping? You what know? do you think? <laughs> well, tell, us, tell our listeners, was it all set out structured, or did it vary from day to day? Well, I'm sure everybody thought it should have been structured but mm-hmm. <laughs> I tried doing that and it didn't really 
work so I, I basically had a rule that I had to do if I was unless I was feeling really rubbish which I think I had about two or three days when I did feel really rubbish mm-hmm. I had to do 12 hours some days I felt better than that so I actually did 14 hours or I'd do 16 and mm-hmm. I didn't really care about like how that looked because some days it was really windy at night time and I hated being out when it was really windy in the big waves because mm. I couldn't see anything and I hated getting wet and so I would be like what's the point of being outside when my boat's going fast anyway because generally wind means your boat's going fast yeah. so I would go and sleep for long hours in the thing and then I'd do more of my rowing in the daytime when I could see when it was you know flat calm I would do more rowing at night time because it was so beautiful and it was cooler so it made more sense to do rowing at night time and mm. sleep more in the daytime at some points I was like oh let me do one hour on 20 minutes off one hour that was when I was really exhausted and then Mm. I just got into a a kind of two hours generally a two hours on 30 40 minutes off two hours on 30 40 Mm. minutes off I was so good at sleeping I could just get in there (laughs) and then my alarm would go off I'd be like oh my god I feel like I've been asleep for hours I could do it for 10 minutes I'd feel like I'd properly slept for and I'd be revitalized I'd be back on it back out there and then um, I'd spend half of my shift trying to figure out how many hours I'd rowed. So mm-hmm. that would be like, when you've got nothing else, like you've got no markers in your life. There's nothing to, there's not like, yeah. oh yeah, I remember because at that time someone phoned me, so that was two hours ago. You've got nothing. I literally, about 11 o'clock in the daytime, I'd be like, how many hours have I done? Mm. Two hours, four <laughs> hours. And then I go, no, that was yesterday. Have I many, when did I, what time did I get up this morning? What time did I go? <laughs> like everything just goes. So I would spend half of my shift trying to f- figure out how long I'd been rowing for wow. that day. And then by that time, yes, yeah, so that passed. So with that said, would you would you say that perhaps there were times you were disorientated? That, did that play a factor at all? Not like kind of disorientated. It's just when you don't have focus or you don't have any like any markers, I think it's just literally like every day is so the same. Mm. And when I say markers, like you don't, oh yes, on Wednesday at four o'clock, I, would, I had a meeting. So you can kind of figure out what's going on in your life and how time Time disappears, basically. Time almost becomes less and less relevant, although you have to follow time because that's mm. what you're on a shift pattern. But in terms of the passing of activities, the only activity that's passing is the same old <laughs> eating and rowing and sleeping. <laughs> yeah. So it all it also moulds into one. Mm-hmm. It all seems very much similar. So, yeah, my brain was actually very good for most for, mm. for it. I didn't have any crazy... <laughs> hallucinations or anything like that no i did see a white whale but i don't think it was a hallucination okay. i think it was real <laughs> all right um well you're the only one who part. knows because you're the only one out there so <laughs> yeah i know but i was feeling like very lucid that's okay. that's when you feel normal right and there's only four of those in the world wow. so um that was the only time i potentially questioned whether it was a hallucination but i don't think it was <laughs> well you mentioned there briefly you said every day looks the same strangely enough you've also said you quite enjoyed being out alone most of the time so did the solitude not affect you psychologically at all just touching on what we've been speaking about no not really i i enjoyed it i found ways to deal with it i would look left i'd look right i'd look for another shark i basically spent my whole time looking for shark fins <laughs> <laughs> in the water mm. i mean the first week and a half your brain is still full of the things from the past week and a half mm. or the you know the from land when you're on land and then as land gets further and further away memories and thoughts get further away and also mm-hmm. your brain's not being filled up with new stuff yeah. um and by the end and then you, i bought in the music and i bought in some podcasts and a few um dvd stuff to watch at night time when it wasn't too windy mm. but by the end of it i wasn't listening to music i wasn't listening to the podcast i was so just I don't know what happens to the time. Your brain just gets yeah. used to passing. Hmm. I don't really know what, I still don't know to this day what would happen in 
a day. I'm like, oh, it's just it's the evening again. Great. <laughs> now, when you have the mindset, though, Kiko, of breaking a record, do, does it not play on you, though, when you're having those breaks, those rests, and saying, you know, I, I could actually be spending this time getting a few meters, kilometers ahead? Oh, yes, it did. To begin with, I was like, well, I had various thoughts. It depended on the positivity of my mental state at the time. Sometimes I was like, what difference is an hour of rowing going to make when <laughs> it was literally like one nautical mile extra? And I thought, for one hour's sleep or one nautical mile, I think I'll have an hour's sleep. But other times I'd be in there and I was like, I felt guilty that I, I was like, this seems really weird. I meant to be rowing the ocean, but mm. I'm in my cabin, like not doing anything or chatting away on my video blog. And I started feeling guilty that I wasn't rowing mm. when I thought I should be. But actually... I shouldn't have been because I was only going to do 12 hours. You know, you've got to let your body rest. So it was, uh, yeah, that sometimes mm. I did feel guilty that I wasn't rowing and that the boat was still moving and, you know, I was maybe sleeping more than I thought I should. Mm. But then on the same <laughs> same side of the coin, I was like, yeah, what's the point? When I, when I, when I was feeling pain, a bit painful, mm-hmm. I'd be like, I don't care about the world record. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to sleep. Who cares? No one else is doing it. Yeah. Like, no, who's going to, who's to judge me anyway on whether I get the record or not? At least I put this boat in the water and I'm giving it a go. Mm. And then I'd get all like, yes, come on, let's row, let's row, let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> so would you say then, was the first half of the challenge the more difficult and the second half easier? Because obviously when you reach that midpoint, you equally as far going ahead as you are returning back home. Yeah, so the first week I loved because it was all really exciting and all the training I put it done. And I mean, this is the first time I've been to sea, so I had no idea what it was like out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really windy. I think it was sort of 25 knots, 30, 25, 30 knots. So the waves were big and I kind of figured out how to work the boat and it was all really nice. I mean, it was a bit scary as well sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I just liked the fact that I was going really fast. And then into about the end of week two, week three, I really became a bit exhausted because I hadn't really been eating that well. Mm -hmm. And I think I just was just wet and soggy and it was Mm -hmm. just all a bit like, okay, the excitement's worn off now. I was, you know, to begin with, I was like, oh, I'm going to be there like tomorrow. (laughs) But actually I realized that tomorrow was quite a few days away. The reality hit home. And then I remember, I remember writing, it's actually in my blog, it says, I'm about five days away from the halfway point. Yay, I'm going to get a record. I'm going to get like under 40 days at this rate. Yeah. Two and a half weeks later, I crossed the halfway point. Wow. So basically what had happened was the wind completely stopped. And, and that was just heavy and hard. And again, there were certain times when I was just like, oh, come on, weather. Come on. You've got to like, what are you doing? This is so frustrating. And I was like, what are you, what are you getting stressed about? You can't do anything about this wind. Just relax and enjoy it, you know? Mm. It's like, this is totally out of your control Mm. so then you know i got over that bit and then as the miles went down from halfway point that was just like so nice to see every every day and a half you would kind of clock a hundred and you'd be like oh i'm on i'm one less down i'm one down (laughs) i'm one down i'm one down and then you know you're a hundred and something Mm. like oh my god i'm like so close now this is i can't believe that this is happening yeah interesting how each stage of the challenge uh, it had its different emotions and feelings attached to it speaking of the white whale you saw there's another story i came across that i found uh, quite interesting there was a a bird that visited you most days uh, on your boat did that lift your spirits at all in a strange way to have that company from another living creature oh my granny that was my granny my (laughs) mum told me coming to visit me Uh (laughs) so she my grandma died um I think sort of eight months before I left, she was very old, but Mm -hmm. she said, oh, I'm going to look after Kiko and she's rowing the Atlantic. It's so amazing what she's doing and blah, blah, blah. 
So <laughs> when I told mum about this bird, she said, that must be, that must be your granny. And mm. I said, okay. So um, it was, I mean, it was, it's, you know, you've got nothing to look forward to in a day. So when you see any creature, mm. it's amazing. It's like, oh, something different in my day. That's exciting. <laughs> um, and I would sort of just, yeah, I'd look out and I'd have a little chat. And I have no idea what this bird was doing. It never took food. It didn't want to do anything. It just would come and see me. It would circle, mm. say hello. Sometimes my granddad turned up as well, and there were two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would circle, and then off they would go. And I, they lost me one day, I think, when I suddenly went south. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, had been going west, and I had to drive south because of the wind. And I think they obviously went to find me where I would be on my westerly trip, but because I'd gone south. So they came sort of the day they missed me. But, yeah, it was really, you know, there was something that you look forward to. I mean, I didn't have it on my stopwatch kind of waiting for them to arrive. But one night I was rowing and I hadn't seen it. And I'm sure he died. I'm sure it was the bird that like almost hit me in the head. I don't know how good their sonar is, but literally this thing kind of whooshed past my face. I was like, whoa, that was a bit close. Um, So I think that one day might have been might have been he was a bit late to the party she was a bit yeah. late to the party sorry yeah <laughs> and then she and then she flew away the, mm-hmm. the day before i arrived in Barbados. oh wow Jeez, what a story. Now, Kika, people who know you and perhaps even those from listening uh, to this podcast, you come across as someone who's very grounded and unfazed by most things. Were you ever scared out there on the Atlantic? So I don't care. I'm not, I don't care about death. I've got no, I'm not fast if I die. Like if I die, I don't know about it. So mm. I think being scared is kind of related to that. Like literally my worst, I, my worst nightmare would be me and my boat being separated but i know that if i'm attached to my boat that's not going to happen so yes there were moments which were not ideal like when the autopilot would jam in the middle of the night and i was all warm and cozy and there were massive great big waves and i'd have to get out like semi-naked and open um hatches and get in there and like change things while the hatch is still open you've got waves coming and your boat's like sideways onto the waves and you're like this is not ideal Mm. (laughs) um but at the end of the day, in my head, I'm like, okay, so first of all, I put myself in this position. So I've only got myself to blame. Secondly, what's the worst that can happen? Well, I can capsize and I'm attached to the boat and I've got a EPIRB, so a personal you know, thing to tell people where I am if mm-hmm. I'm drowning or whatever. Not that I'm drowning, but if the boat is going down. So Yeah, more just concerns rather than you know, fear. Yeah, it's just like I'd rather be in my bed warm and cosy right now than out doing this horrible activity. Like mm. I know that if something goes wrong, then at the end of the day I can push a button and that's the end of the, the project. But yeah. it's not scary so much. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's scary about death. Yeah. Is that what scary is? Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't know. Well, 24 hours before getting to Barbados, I'm sure a lot of emotions are running through you. What was that like for you? And was there a big reception at the finish line for you? No one came to see me. <laughs> no, <lie. laughs> no, my mum came and my dad and my brother and my nephew. Um, he said it was the best day of his life, um, which is very sweet. I mean, he's only seven, so he's not had much life yet. But, you know, and there were some other local people who were there on holidays. So that was lovely. Um, so in the morning, obviously, it was amazing it was great and i woke up quite early and i got rowing and i actually ended up doing 18 about 18 or 19 hours non-stop that day um partly because well so i went for a little snooze at nine o'clock and i woke up to this weird noise and when i looked out the cabin my boat was marooned in the middle of about four football pitches of seaweed um couldn't see the edge so i was kind of i had to wait till the sun sun rose so i could see how to get out of Mm. this thing um then I rode and I rode and I rode and I rode and suddenly my GPS went down and then my navigation panels, like the 
TVs looking at the screens mm-hmm. went off. Wow. And I was like, ah, oh, Angus, he's my weatherman. I was like, what's going on? My GPS has gone down and I can't see Barbados yet. It's like, I don't know. And I suddenly realized what had happened is two nights before I'd had a wave come into my cabin through mm-hmm. a little hole and it soaked my electrical system. Oh, and basically what was happening was everything was on its way off. <laughs> and so for about... It was probably the most highly charged 10 hours yeah. of rowing I had because <laughs> everyone was waiting for me to arrive before sunset. So I got a TV crew. Um, I didn't want to have to anchor off Barbados at night time and bloody blood about all mm-hmm. this kind of things. And I had to be there by a certain time. And I was waiting now for my autopilot to go kaput because mm-hmm. everything else was going off. <laughs> and if my autopilot had gone off, then I would have had to hand steer. And if I'd hand steered, then I probably wouldn't be able to row. And if I hadn't been able to row properly, then I wouldn't be able to get in in time. Mm-hmm. So it was all like really quite stressful. And like, I was just going, please, autopilot, don't go off, don't go off, don't go off. And it managed to somehow go on for 24 hours, which is unheard of. Yeah. I was literally telling the autopilot that I loved it just so it would keep going. <laughs> so it would keep going. And it did. And it was amazing. And it got me there. Yeah. And when I just remember going, when I could see my mum and dad were flashing the mirror at me from the, the end of the point in Barbados. So I was yeah. like, I've made it. My life is about to change forever. Yeah. This uh-huh. is, I can't believe I've actually like pulled this one off. <laughs> it was like such a whim. Oh yeah. I'm going to marry Prince Harry. How, how am I going to get his attention? And here I was rocking up in Barbados yeah. with a week off the world record. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> well, your incredible journey, apart from the record, Kika, I mean, you raised a hundred thousand pounds. I mean, that's what I last heard. It could be more to help obviously build a new intensive care unit at uh, London's King's College Hospital, where obviously you received your life-saving uh, treatment. Was this a motivation at all during those really low moments out there on the water? Oh, yeah, totally. I was, um, you know, constantly thinking about not only the fact that they, you know, saved my life the first time, but they'd gone to so much effort yeah. to get me sorted quickly before I left the Atlantic. The only way you're going to get success out of anything is if you've got a true purpose, and that was one purpose. The other purpose was my community of women that helped me fundraise and actually put the boat in the water in the first place and mm. you know some of those some of the girls from schools that are to be part of that had done like long 24-hour rows which I'd not even done a 24-hour row um a lot of the time when things weren't great it was that was what I was you know, that was the thing I was rooting for and I know people it sounds a bit cheesy but it honestly was like there were times when I was like I don't care if I get the mm. world record or not you know but oh yes I do because those girls did x y z and I do because people have there were a couple of people who said they'd give me money for Kings if I did get the record. So, you know, there was a financial incentive to that. And yeah. the more I, if I was to get the record, then Kings would get a better, there'd be better PR for Kings. Yeah. So mm. Kings got amazing PR out of what happened, which is great. They deserve it. But mm. if I hadn't got the record, it might not have been quite so <laughs> exciting. And I'm currently on 110. I've still oh, got wow. two fundraisers to go. I'm aiming for 150 now. Sure. Wow. Incredible. Well, Kiko, you arrived home, I think it was towards the end of March this year. So it's been about six months now, roughly, since uh, the end yeah. of your insane adventure. How has it been for you adjusting to life after the challenge? There's obviously been quite a bit of media hype around you. Has it been difficult at all to go back to the way things were before you rode the Atlantic? Uh, I mean, the first the first weekend, or the second weekend, was Easter weekend, and it was pissing it down with rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always nice to come back to the UK when you've been in hot sunny Barbados and mm-hmm. because it was bank, it was a long weekend so everyone disappeared and I hadn't made any plans because mm-hmm. I was you know been at sea there's nothing I was doing anything about so I was a little bit like oh what do I do next <laughs> that was quite fun and then I do remember going to an event and there was quite low ceilings and there were lots of people and it was really noisy and everyone was mm-hmm. sort of like right in my 
in my face and I was like <laughs> oh I don't want to have to talk to you like quite so much and get away from my personal yeah. area and, and space but now I'm back where I started I'm whizzing around yeah. being mad and crazy <laughs> so yeah one of the reasons I did it was mm-hmm. very much to inspire people there's no yeah. point in me doing something and going no I'm not so going to tell you I'm not going to talk to you unless you pay me I'm not going to do this or mm. like the whole thing was to you know so I do do quite a lot of talks and I do a lot mm-hmm. of podcasts and mm-hmm. I want people to be listening and going oh, actually, I can do that 5K run, or actually, I can make change my jobs, or actually, I am able to get over that little blip in my life, which, mm. when I think about it, is really not that huge. It was funny, when someone was coming, when I was coming into Barbados, someone was giving birth, and apparently oh, they, wow. were, like, they were thinking about me and what I was going through, and yeah. it's actually a friend of the family's. And then she went and named her child Emmy, which is my sister's name. Uh. I was like, why would you name your child? <laughs> I was just about to ask, sister? why didn't they name it Kiko? <laughs> Yeah, when I was the one that was getting you through your birth. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think what I think what it was is that she didn't want to tell her child, where do you get your name from? Oh, well, we named it after this girl who was rowing the Atlantic. And then her daughter going, that's what I want to do. I want to go and do what the girl I was named after did. So yeah. I think she called her Emmy, so there would never be a question. I would never I would never come into, yeah. the, into the conversation. Brilliant. Well, you haven't been away from the ocean too long, Kika. I mean, recently you've been sailing and even cycling around Denmark, doing some ocean Ocean plastic research. It sounds interesting. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, yes, yeah, so I've always been quite into the environment. When I was in my paddleboarding, we did trash for treats, which was collecting trash from the canal, mm-hmm. and then we'd get treats. And so I thought, as part of my next project, mm-hmm. I wanted just to get an understanding a bit more about, you know, what, what's out there, what the problem is, what what's going on in sort of research styles. And also, mm-hmm. it kind of combined my adventure. I suppose it was a comp- uh, an organization called By the Ocean We Unite. And it's, mm-hmm. I would say, holidays with purpose. So they're educational. It's a holiday, basically, but mm-hmm. you learn and you do stuff that is related around the environment and i just thought i'd cycle there and cycle back because it started in rotterdam and finished in rotterdam so (laughs) yeah and i've been just cycling in between because they kicked me off and i needed to meet back up with them later on (laughs) yeah so really interesting amazing yeah well lastly kiko you've got some very interesting and exciting plans uh, coming up Uh, share that with our listeners if you could it's called kick plastic and i'm going to be cycling the coast of the uk and i'm going to be it's very community-based totally not about me um 6700 kilometers i will be doing but then i'm dividing it's 12 legs and i'm inviting corporates to sponsor a leg and come and get involved and then every evening we're doing a beach clean with a school and a community and the idea being that those schools and communities will have hopefully families um and the employees of the businesses will go back to their home and workplace and make change within that whilst also keeping me company i'm not sure what's going to be harder Mm. (laughs) entertaining or cycling i'm not sure um keeping me company as we go along hopefully getting celebrities to come and get involved um we're going to have tv and Mm. like media um to spread the message and hopefully using my profile and of media platform Mm. um to help with the sponsorship but also that following and inspiring people and educating as well because that's one of my other loves so Mm -hmm. if you look at kick plastic Mm. it should be um available and they've got a nice little video well kika now after this though more from a personal point of view another solo possibly a solo challenge have you got anything on the cards or any thoughts or ideas yet that there could be maybe something else out there that will push you physically and mentally to the same extremes as your solo row across the atlantic i don't know i don't know whether i need to i mean i get as equally challenged mentally as i do physically so setting up you know a massive project yeah. is is very challenging i don't really give i don't really care about you know the whole 
look at me, I can do this amazing stuff. I did, you know, the reason, one of the reasons I did what I did was to A, give money back to Kings to show mm. people you could do anything. That it won't really have the same story because now everyone go, oh, well, you've rode the Atlantic, of course you can do anything. It's like you know, that already exists. So now for me to just go, oh, well, actually, look, I can do this. It's not about me. This is about the rest of the world and making change and making an impact rather than just being a total ego mm. <laughs> ego thing so probably having a child on my own will probably be the next solo challenge <laughs> yeah. i do yeah that's possibly one of the most ultimate challenges well kiko maybe you are told this quite often but you are an unbelievably inspirational person to go from a life-threatening illness twice fight your way back to health and transform your life the way you have is what movies are made of thank you so much for sharing the highs and lows from your epic adventure across the atlantic and uh, we cannot wait to see and hear more about kick plastic your initiative uh, which you'll be starting up very soon thank you for joining us on the hardest nails podcast thank you thanks very much for having me